everyone and welcome back to the Triumph Coffee Break podcast. My name is Pietro Giampa and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Triumph, Canada's Particle Accelerator Center. However, for the next little while, I'm simply going to be your host for this exciting podcast. I'm very excited this is really happening. Triumph finally has a podcast series, so let's go. If you're a first-time listener and you don't know much about this podcast, here's what you're in for. This is a science podcast, but with a twist. Not only do we want to share the wonder of discovery science and the exciting scientific journey, we also want to give you a unique look at this scientific facility through the stories of the diverse employees that make Triumph a world-class facility. Each episode, I sit down for a chat of a coffee with a different colleague of mine to discuss the world of physics, its many shades and colors, and let the story flow. From the study of subatomical particles, to medical physics, to the study of galaxies far, far away, the scientific palette that Triumph offers is very rich and definitely not lacking in content. So episode by episode, we'll do our best to cover as much as possible as we see Triumph through the eyes of the people who work here. It is through their stories that you will learn not only about the science, but also about the personal path and challenges that people face in their journey that have led them to this beautiful facility. So whether you know everything or nothing at all about Triumph, a place where the boundaries of science and technology development are pushed on a daily basis, well, this podcast is for you. Without any further ado, mugs at the ready, Let's get started with this episode of the Triumph Coffee Break podcast titled Something Important and Something Cool. So let me welcome the guest for this episode, Dr. Marcello Pavan. He's the head of academics and user programs here at Triumph. However, you've been at Triumph for a while now, and you've covered multiple roles. 33, 33. years ago in January is the first time I stepped in. So man, many, many hats. This one is just the latest. So welcome on the show. Thank you. It's very nice to have you here. We're going to have some good times in this recording session. Should be Fant- good. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Uh, so let's just jump right into it. And uh, why don't we start with where did your curiosity uh, came into play. As a physicist, as a scientist, curiosity is the beginning of every uh, every career. That's when you know you gotta get interest into something. You gotta get passion about something, and um, you gotta get curious about physics to get involved into physics. So why don't we start with that? How did you get involved with physics, and where did everything started for you? Well, everything started when I was a kid, of course. Uh, probably got the genetics from my father, who was brought up during the war. He was a teenager during the war. Prior to that, he was an extremely uh, curious man throughout his life. And through the war, he maintained that curiosity. He only went to grade five. I think he was, at the time, he only went to grade five. But he was an extremely curious man all through his life. He was trained as a carpenter, but that didn't stop him. Uh, I always saw my dad, well, later in life when I c- tried to come to understand what my, who my father was, he really was a, uh, a scholar trapped in a working class tradesman body. He, all his life, 
He was a voracious reader. He tried to understand everything, science, philosophy, politics, economics. He engaged in uh, deep conversations about everything. He was interested in everything. So and that, wittingly or unwittingly, I absorbed that and ever since I was a kid. And um, so certainly part of it is genetic, and it was certainly nurtured on the part of my father. Uh, my earliest memories of, uh, let's see, having a curious childhood, I remember I used to go to the library at elementary school in Trail, after school or at recess or at lunch, I'd go to the library and I'd read through all the encyclopedias. So I went, you know, in those days, um, for those of you at home who don't know what an encyclopedia is, it's a compendium of knowledge and books, printed it's books. Actual no, printed. Like printed you, books, You can yes. open and go through page by page. Page by page. In, and there's in, multiple books. It, well, yeah, there's whole volumes, right? So there's 26 volumes, one, you know, A, B, C, D. Uh, the World Book Encyclopedia, there was Collier's Encyclopedia, there was the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. And so, I would go to the library and uh, I would start with A and I just read through the whole thing. And then I would tell my friends about it. So, oh, do you know what a computer is? You know, we're talking 1972 or something, right? So, you know what a computer is? And computers do these things and they have these things called memory and they use magnets and and I would, I remember a memory learning how to how a color TV worked. I thought it was fascinating that you can combine the three colors. And again, this is a different time TV. <laughs> oh right, yeah, students, know, yeah, they don't know about color TV. <laughs> we're talking yeah, about the old CRT tubes. And I remember going home and and you know the very they, fat TVs. Yeah, big the big fat TVs. And and so you have these electron beams shining with red, green, and blue. And and I remember pressing my face up against the television to see if I could see the the different color dots, which, you know, fuse to form the uh, the colors uh, on each pixel of the television. And I remember seeing it, and I thought, wow. That's, that's the coolest thing. That is the coolest thing. And so you, you mentioned your dad was clearly a big influence, and you started yeah. you know, getting interest and reading, and your curiosity sparked. Um, let me take just a quick step back before we go any further. And let's just paint a picture here. Um, could you give us maybe... Time frame and a location frame. I know you mentioned a location maybe already, but... Well, I was born and raised in Trail, B.C., which is in the West Kootenays, southeastern part of British Columbia. At the time in... Um, so I was born in 1963. So we grew growing up there in the... the uh, my childhood there was in the 60s and 70s. And at that time, it was a very heavily dominated community by Italians. So it was considered an Italian city. And a lot of uh, towns and villages in B.C. were, at the time, I don't think so. it's the same these days, but in those days, it was dominated by certain cultures. So in Trail, it was Italians. In the neighboring town of Kasagar, it was um, uh, Russia uh, Ukrainians. And in other villages, you know, there'd be predominantly other cultures. So in ours, it was Italian, and all my friends were Italian, and all my neighbors were Italian. They were all immigrants, big immigrant community. Things haven't changed that much even, you know, a few years later, two Italians sitting at yeah, the Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but at the time, and the culture there was the parents were working class, lower, you know, lower middle class, working class people. And their kids were not going to be lower middle class, working class right. people. It was very much, you're going to school, you're going to study hard, you're going to work, 
you know, you're going to be somebody. You're going to be a lawyer, accountant, doctor, whatever. You're going to do something. So that's that was implicit. Yeah, there was the the mentality of we we moved across the world and we're making the sacrifice so that you right. can have a better life. That's right. And you they and you know and that implicit assumption was felt by everybody. Like it was just assumed. So you know they would ask me then, well, what are you going to do when you grow up? Well, I'm going to university. Why? You know, I don't know. <laughs> Supposed to. That's what you do, right? What are you going to do when you get there? I don't know. I'll figure it out when I get there. So that was the culture at the time. It was a great time to work up. I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, sort of the tail end of the very tail end of the baby boom is like 1963, 1964. So there was all sorts of us. I mean, there was, I had so many friends. There was dozens of us. It was crazy. We could field two full soccer teams. And, in um, trails, British Columbia. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a, a small place. You know, I think at the time it was probably 10,000 people in the city, 20,000, 25, if you include the surrounding areas. And it was a great place to grow up. It was, it was a really fun place, and we had a very active uh, childhood. And uh, I would probably be considered the, the, the local, one of the local geeks at the time. So even though I'm very much engaged in all of the other stuff that we did, cabin building and, and all the other hijinks, I think it's pretty fair to say I was one of the geeks. One of my, one of my friends uh, used to call me the professor all the time, right? Because I'd be the one who, who would go and read the, the encyclopedias and come back and tell everybody about it. You know, from the time I was, you know, 10 or something, I'd learn something and I would tell it, whether they wanted to hear it or not, it didn't matter. So I would, you know, go on Knowledge and tell them. Knowledge will be transferred. Yeah, I would tell them about the conflicts in Guatemala at the time. And they're like, what, where, what, what are you talking about? Just shut up. You know, let's play hockey. Let's do something else. So I was in very much embedded with my, through my father in that sort of culture of um, just wanting to know. I just always wanted to know what was going on. If a teacher would say anything at school about anything and it was, and you know, they couldn't give a satisfactory answer, I would like immediately head to the library and try to find out what the heck was that all about. So the curiosity slash the why yeah. was very strong in you since the very yeah, beginning. Why? It just why, why? Like, why did you say that? Like, why? I don't get it. The and then they couldn't give me a satisfactory answer. I would go try to find out why. So why has always been my driving, I mean, in everything, even today, it's like, why? Like, why, why is, is the it? ultimate question in physics? Yeah, why right? is it? And so I've always had it. So, uh, of course, at the time, I did not know that this was a, you know, a prerequisite to be a scientist. It, it was the why came first. The why came first, not the, oh, I want to be a scientist and therefore I should ask why. It was like I've always asked why. And then you just, just discover that that's the kind of thing that you need if you wanted to be a scientist or a researcher of any kind. you got to start with the why. Right. Speaking of why, normally people start understanding a little bit at a higher level once they go to university, you know, because elementary school, high school, that's kind of where you learn the basics, but you really get to learn the details and, and become an expert at, to some degree at, at the university level. How was that transition for you going from trail to your undergraduate? How did that came about? And where did you go to undergraduate? How did that career started? Well, so when I'm in school, you know, they start asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up, when you're, you know, grade 
nine or ten, you know, start going to counseling and whatever. And I had no idea because I want I was interested in everything, everything. Um, you know, I took the math and physics and chemistry courses. I learned pretty early on that I wasn't going to be a lawyer, basically, because my dad for, forbidded it. And then biology, I wasn't too thrilled about biology because it seemed to me at the time to be just a study of words. But basically everything else was open, like everything else. And, uh, and then the Apple computer came out. The Apple II was unveiled in, what year was that, 79, 80, something like that. And uh, they got the Apple II computers at the school. And we're talking, you know, you've probably seen pictures of the original ones. They're little flat boxes. And Mm -hmm. you have a little TV monitor, maybe an eight-inch monitor on top, and it was black and white. Well, that was it. Okay. I needed to know how this worked. Byte Magazine was big at the, you know, I I think I got the first issue of Byte Magazine. So I needed to know how these computers work. This was brand new. This this like this like came from outer space. So that was it, the first step. That was the first spinning down of yeah, what they, all exactly. this curiosity was starting to funnel exactly. towards one way. Exactly. And then I remember talking at the time and then well where do you learn about computers? And well, you know, I did a little reading. Of course, there was no internet at the time, and it was Stanford University. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to Stanford University because, well, I have no idea where Stanford is. I couldn't find it for you on a map, but that's where I'm going because they I, do I computers. I the time. <laughs> well, I know now. I, I've been there, actually, so, um, so I'm going to do computers. So that was the first inkling or the, the first juncture in the road, mm-hmm. junction in the road, let's put it that way. And so that was kind of my focus at the time. But, you know, I took physics and all that kind of stuff. And I liked physics. You know, we had a, a cool physics teacher. His name was uh, Jimmy Haight. And Jimmy was a, a cool guy. Um, not th- maybe the best pedagogical teacher you've ever found, but he was a really good guy and I, I liked him. And so, you know, I liked physics, but it was computers were my focus. So I'm going to go to UBC and I'm going to take computer science. So that was the goal. So you're going to go to university. That was a given. Where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to go to Stanford. Well, sorry, you can't afford Stanford. You're going to be away from home. How about UBC? Uh, I went to UBC. I was going to be a computer and go into computer science. Had no idea what that meant. So you do first year science at UBC and with a computer science course. And so you, you know, I did my first year studies and I stayed at student residence here, Totem Park. You moved from Trail to Vancouver. Yeah. This was... Uh... 1981, September of 1981. I remember my, my neighbor, Joe, gave me a ride. My mom packed so much stuff we couldn't... I had to take an extra pair of shoes out of the trunk or else we couldn't close the trunk. It was absolutely jam-packed. It was me and Joey in the front seat. The back seat was packed. The trunk was packed. He had one of these old Impalas. My hand was broken. I had broken my hand in a soccer game. And we drove here. And I remember Joey (laughs) at Totem Park drops me off. This is where you're going? Yeah, okay. Brings all my stuff, throws it out of the car, puts it on the curb. Says, well, good luck. And he drove off. And fortunately, I ended up in a dorm with some really good guys. And, and I met this one guy, Rob Dresky. And Rob uh, says, hey, where are you from? Oh, you new here? Yeah. Okay, well, let's go. And I fit right in. That was, it was fun. So I, ca- I came here. I was in with a great group of guys in a dorm. Went into first-year science. and doing computer science. And really had a, really a wonderful time. And uh, 
I was going to do computer science, but I noticed something. So I'm reading through the calendar. So the calendar is this book. It used to be printed. The UBC calendar tells you about all the course offerings and whatnot. So I'm reading it over the summer, and I realized computer science doesn't teach you how to build computers. That's not co in computer science. Computer science is all about programming. I said, well, which program teaches you how to build computers? So I'm reading through the book, and I found out electrical engineering. That's where you learn, you know, circuit design. And that's like, oh, for God's sake, I'm in the wrong program. Oh, I have to change into engineering now. You know, it's like July or something like this where I finally noticed this. I said, oh, I have to transfer into engineering. Me and my mom called up UBC. It's, oh, we made a mistake. I know I'm supposed to go into computer science, but he's got, he wants to go into engineering now. And they're like, uh, you can't do that. And she said, yeah, sure, why not? And she kept phoning and phoning and phoning, and finally they let me into engineering. And then I got into engineering. So I'm, now I'm taking, so you have to do first year engineering. And then in, so this is my second year of school. And then in the third year, you start to specialize. So I went into electrical engineering because that's where you learn how to build computers. So this is quite interesting. So you started with a very broad curiosity. Yeah. And then you found out, I want to figure out how to make computers. Yeah. And then you realized, you went, okay, let's do computer science and realize that's not exactly what I wanted. And you call an audible and switch to electrical engineering. <laughs> Calling an audible is a good way to do it. Yeah, because it was really last minute. And of course, I, I look back and I was so utterly clueless about societal norms. Actually, I guess I still am in many respects. But at that time, it was really, <laughs> I just got to shake my head at the kind of stuff that I, I mean, me and my mom just kept calling him. It's like, I'm going to go into engineering. Well, yeah, I just made a mistake. Well, how am I supposed to know? And, you know, they're like, uh, you can't do that. You know, it's July. Anyway, so they managed to get myself in. So then I went into electrical engineering. So, and then I'm in there and I didn't like it. And what had happened is the summer before, I'd taken a job doing computer programming at Selkirk College. And the why didn't leave me. So even though I had achieved a certain level of focus on, you know, I want to learn about building computers, you know, and I had all kinds of books at home I was reading about building your own computers. I, that why never left me. You know, so you I would still that scratch, that scratch just, you know, I would still go in the library. So I had this job at Selkirk College. Get rid of. I couldn't get rid of it. You know, and it's one of those scratches that you like it, right? You know, like, oh, that feels good. And I go into the library and I would start reading just whatever. And I found these books. It was on physics books. These books. I thought, wow, this is all this physics about quantum mechanics and, you know, spooky action at a distance, all this kind of stuff. And so I read that and I said, wow, you know, physics is actually pretty cool. And I started to looking in the life of Einstein and all these other people. And so when I got to, um, started to do my engineering degree in electrical engineering, after the first term, again, I started looking through the book. And I thought, well, it's computer engineering, it was still early days for that. And it was in the engineer, electrical engineering program, but it wasn't fully fleshed out. Now there is. It's called ECE, you know, electrical and computer engineering. But at the time, it wasn't. And it, it just didn't seem like exactly what I wanted. But then I noticed this other program. It was called Engineering Physics. And I thought, wow, that's... And they have a, 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 a sub-major that you can take. So you do Engineering Physics with, um, with um, a specialty in electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, whatever. And there's one in electrical engineering. I thought, well, that's perfect. Because I, I, I thought physics was cool. So I'll do physics and 
and, and, and I'll do some electrical engineering. So I'll learn how to build computers. That's it. Win-win. So that's fantastic. We went from asking the question, how do you build a computer to computer science to electrical engineering? And now we're engineering with physics. Engineering physics, right. And we're getting closer to try to at least... Find out how I ended up in this chair, right? So, the um, so again, it, with my utter cluelessness, which has actually helped me a great deal, I think, in my life. Uh, I just walked into the executive director of the engineering physics program, a guy named Ed Aldo, and I said, um, "I'd like to transfer into engineering physics." I remember the look that he gave me was like, uh, "You can't do that." <laughs> You know, that was, I walked in and like. And that's the second time you hear that. Yeah, UBC. yeah, December. It was like December, the end of the first term. He goes, but the program's full. I said, oh, well, can't you add me? You know, I was just, oh my goodness. And, uh, and so we were talking and he asked me why I wanted to do it. And so I went in this big, long soliloquy, which I'm apt to do about physics and, and, and computer science and engineering. And I've read about all of this stuff and I must've gone on for half an hour. Um, and at the end, he said, well, you know, I think there's a, a student who's transferring out. He's leaving, leaving UBC. So l l let's look. L let me look at your transcript. I come back to his office a week later, and he says, well, I looked at your transcript and blah, blah, blah. And we talked some more, and, you know, I went on and on and on as I do. And he goes, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, okay, I think you'll be fine. And that's another case of being at the right place at the right time. Absolutely and, and fluky. Just Go and try to make your own opportunity, though. Yeah. I mean, it could have... Which will be a recurring theme in this, in this yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. That's actually very true because it was a, uh, you know, it was a shot in the dark. I didn't know any better, right? Which was helpful, actually, in that case. Because had I known better, I thought, well, I can't go in there and ask him. And uh, so Ed let me into the engineering physics program. I had to backfill some a couple of courses, but not a big deal. But somehow, some way, that led you down your path that ultimately took you to Triumph. And you actually started at Triumph as a summer student. Yeah. Which yeah. I think it's incredible considering now you're the person who controls and helps all those students that, that come in. And, that's hilarious. And, and, maybe, maybe we shouldn't air all of this stuff because people will now know who's <laughs> one, who this guy is uh, who's heading their office. But the, why don't you talk to us about that transition, like, you know, from your undergraduates and how you got to Triumph as a summer student uh, how did you get that opportunity? Why don't, you, why don't we talk so, about that for a minute? I mean, despite what seems a, a rather dystopic vision of what my undergraduate was, I was still very, very uh, curious and, and, um, and really still always asking the why. I would always hang out in the libraries. I used to, I had to hang out this favorite spot in the, what's now the Irvin K. Barber Library, but it used to be called the Main Stacks. And there was this one section where all these books on Einstein were, and I'd get a desk there. And I would as read as much about, you know, uh, everything as I could possibly could. And so, you know, my friends in EngFizz, because we'd all gather together in, over in the Heb building, you know, I would go on and on with them like I did with my friends when I was in elementary school about some latest thing that I read, you know, Bell's Inequality and, you know, the... Uh, this, uh, this funky quantum mechanical things. And, and so that never left me. Right? Despite us, all this other stuff, so I was always intensely curious, needed to know. If I had to f find out, I'd go find out. So that was all being nurtured at the same time. I didn't have a particular focus in mind. Part of me was still going very strong. And so when I got to the, uh, the, the final, my final year, 
Now you're starting to get anxious again, like I was getting anxious in high school. What am I supposed to be doing now, right? Um, still interested in many, many different things. And this opportunity came up for a job at Triumph. Triumph up until that time, I had never gone to visit. Uh, we just sort of knew Triumph. It was kind of a nuclear physics place. They were the people that were using all the computer time at night on the mainframes at UBC. You were you knew you you came you came to learn not to try to use the computers at night because Triumph was would use all the resources. Amazing. But I thought, well, that you know that sounds kind of cool, and it was building some fast electronics for an experiment. So there was another potential project, and that was doing um, some gallium investigating gallium arsenide as a computer chip technology, and this was going to be in trail in my hometown. So as an engineer working on developing uh, techniques for growing gallium arsenide, at the time, it seemed like a, a potential alternative to silicon-based uh, uh, semiconductor technology. And on top of that, it's back in your hometown. Back in my hometown. So my back parents, with folks. Back with my, my parents really wanted me to take that job, and, and, uh, and they said, oh, you know, it could launch your career, blah, blah, blah. But something in the back of me said, well, there's this Triumph thing. It sounds really cool. Right? This is really cool. And I hummed and hawed and hummed and hawed. And I said, uh, you know what? I could always do the gallium arsenide thing later maybe. So I'm going to do the took the Triumph job, which, again, was one of the best decisions I ever made. The, the supervisor, who later became my Ph.D. supervisor, Garth Jones, Professor Garth Jones, terrific, great guy. I couldn't have handpicked a better mentor, supervisor, had I had the opportunity to, to design the perfect supervisor. So it was extremely lucky. And I remember walking into Triumph that first day. So you walk in through the, the, the big bay doors were in the, uh, in the Maison Hall. And I walked in and I was like, I'm home. As soon as I walked in there, I just stood there with my mouth open. It's like this. Your breath was taken away. This, this is where I want to be. I knew right away. And uh and I would run up and down the stairs, you know, in the Maison Hall, you know, those metal stairs that go down to, the, oh, to yeah. the experimental areas, you know. And I was just so excited to be there, just so excited to be there. Just loved it. We had a little lab over at Henning's building. So this now, we're, this is 86, 1986. But then the summer ended, and then we did the project, and I didn't have a job. Can you tell us a little bit about your project? What were you working on? So I was working on developing a high-speed uh, amplifier for some multi-wire drift chambers, which was going to be used in an experiment of pi D to 2P. So it's a pion absorption on a deuteron, a polarized deuteron. It gets absorbed by the deuteron, and then out come two, two protons. And the experiment was you have a polarized deuteron, and you would look for the polarization in either one of the outgoing protons. It's called spin transfer. So how much of the polarization from the deuteron was transferred onto the outgoing protons, okay? So we used multi-wire drift chambers to track the protons as they um, entered and then left the analyzer, the, uh, the spin analyzer. And to do that, you needed fast electronics. And so we were developing, you know, they needed to work at 300 megahertz and most of the challenge there is noise. You've got to keep the noise down and, and, and spurious signals and whatnot. And it was a good project for an undergraduate. Yeah, we had great fun. That became my master's project because, the again, you were talking about serendipity and good luck. 
So serendipity, I was standing actually outside of Garth's office, Garth Jones's office. And the one of, and this was near, I think it was at the end of the term and people were, you know, getting interviewed for jobs and, you know, and I had, I was a good student, not a, you know, awesome student, but I was a good student. So I, you know, had decent marks. And so I'm standing there wondering what the heck am I going to do? Right. And I met a friend of mine named Richard Slamka. And I'll remember this to the day I die. And we're talking about it and he had some job and he asked, well, why don't you ask Garth for a job? His office is right there. He goes, you were doing this project. Maybe he'll let you keep doing it for the summer. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. So Richard leaves, and I'm standing there, and I look at the door, and I said, well, okay, whatever. Knock on the door. And and Garth's office at the time was absolutely classic. Like you couldn't tell if he was in there. There was books and papers packed, you know, piled eight feet high. And I hear this disembodied voice from the back. You come in, and you sort of, you have to wind yourself through this labyrinth. So I asked him, and I said, Garth, um, you know, uh, do you have a job for me this summer? Just like that, straight up. I remember he was kind of taken aback. Well, you know, I guess there's work to do. I guess I could hire you as an undergraduate. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. I'd love to. I'd help any way I can. Just walked into his office. And that's it. That was and he said, yeah, sure. Yeah, great. Okay. We shook hands on it and I left and suddenly I had a summer job. And so that's May of 1986. And that's another great example of just going with the flow and sometimes creating your own opportunity, yeah. but just... What's the worst that can happen? Exactly. I mean, I did. What uh, was the worst that he could have said to you? He could have no. said no, like all the other people I, you know, right. interviewed, right? But this one, you know, Garth happened you know, to you say You only yes. have to, you can swing the bat as many times. You only have to eat the ball once, right? And this was a home run. This was a grand slam, and this actually. this was a grand slam. This was a grand slam because uh, you talk about pivotal moments in your life. That was, that was one of the key ones. So then I um, started as an undergraduate. By the end of the summer, Garth said, you know, you should consider doing a master's degree. And I was doing it in engineering physics, so it was in engineering. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm going to be a graduate school and I'm going to follow this path. You know, I was just doing the next step. And this was really cool and I really enjoyed it, so I was going to do that. And he said, you should do a master's degree. And uh, so I started a master's in the, the well, I stayed as it eight months, I guess, as an undergraduate, and then I started as a master's student working on this project title of my thesis was a proton polarimeter for pion physics. So I, I did my master's and uh, then I was faced with the same problem again. Now what am I going to do? And I had a buddy who was in PET doing uh, PET scanners and whatnot, uh, nuclear medicine. And uh, he had a possibility of a job working in the PET program over in the UBC hospital. And I made it through the interview. And again, I just walked up to him and said, hey, you know, can you give me a job? Or, well, we'll interview you. Yeah, great. So I made it through the interview process right up to the final two, uh, but they hired the other guy. It was a good it choice. Happens. It was a good choice. It was much more experienced. So I, I was good with that. But now I had nothing to do. <laughs> really stuck. And Garth had to say, well, why don't you do a PhD? I said, I got some physics uh, projects that you can work on. I have to laugh now because when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was get a PhD in something. Because, you know, if you are interested and you're, you know, you want to be a scientist of some kind or, you know, being a professor of some kind, you need a PhD. What that meant or what that entailed or why that was a thing, 
it, I had no idea. Almost didn't matter. It didn't matter. But when I was a kid, I wanted to be yeah. a PhD of something. You know, didn't matter. Just because it, you know, like being a National Hockey League player or something like that. That was the same kind of idea. And so now it was like, oh, my God, I'm getting offered a PhD. Holy cow. In physics. Cool. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. And uh, so we started. I mean, why not? That sounds super cool. Yeah. You know, but you think about it. You Most people don't do that. You know, you have, you go to school and, you you know, I have a, a vision to go to graduate school in physics or chemistry or whatever. And then you go to graduate school and I'm going to get a PhD and a postdoc. I didn't even yeah. know what a postdoc was at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that because for me, I, I was personally very structured as well. I, I, I knew what I wanted to do from high school. So I went to undergraduate, did exactly the kind of physics I wanted. I got my yeah. master exactly in what I wanted. And so when I hear people like like you that has that has this unique path, it's just a great story to hear that sometimes you just it's great to just work it out as you go along. Yeah. And it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I tell yeah, I say this to everybody because I mean, it's good to know what you want to do. Okay? This is not the least stressful way to go about things. But uh, so when I started, it was great. So he had a project for me. And it was going to be pion production in what was now the electron hall, but then it was called the proton hall. And it was pion production experiments on a uh, on nuclei. But uh, as so we're still talking about nuclear nuclear physics. physics, and so he had one assigned for me. But then, like often happens, you know, you go to talks. Like we have student lectures, we have the student seminars, right? So there were some seminars, and somebody came to UBC and gave a talk on what was called then, or what actually still called the sigma term puzzle. And it has something to do in pion-proton scattering, low energy, uh, quantum chromodynamics. There's this uh, parameter, it's called the sigma term. And it's relevant for things like chiral perturbation theory, the structure of the nucleon at low energies, et cetera, et cetera. So deep understanding of nuclear physics, uh, of, basically. Of the nucleon, actually more particle physics. It's, it's not the nuclear environment, it's just the, the proton. So you were already passing through from nuclear physics to particle physics. Well, I was going to be in, in nuclear physics, but this guy gave this talk. And the guy's name was Jeff Brack. He came from Colorado. He's a postdoc. And so he gave this talk. And I said, well, wait a minute. That sounds really cool. There's a puzzle. Maybe I can help solve this puzzle. There's I, a question that nobody has an answer yet. There's a question, to. right? And so I started to look into it, and I found out about some tools that you can use for analyzing data and databases. And in my spare time, I was looking at this data and trying to investigate this. And I was doing it in my spare time. And I looked at it, and every once in a while, I, would, I discovered some discrepancies and some problems. And I would go to Garth and, and Greg Smith, who was a Triumph Research Scientist at the time, with this stuff and say, hey, did you, did you see this? Did you know about this? It, th this is weird. Did, don't you think this is weird? And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, that's Was that the classic? And, uh, oh, f thanks. What's the latest update on your project? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so how's your project coming? So this went on for some months. And then finally, I think I had accumulated enough information. I wanted to propose an experiment. I said, I think I know what the problem is. We have to redo the differential cross-sections of the pion-proton scattering. Absolute cross-sections, we need them very accurately around the delta resonance. I think that's where the problem is. There's some discrepancies here. I think if we solve that problem, which is something we could do at Triumph, we're going to help solve this so problem. So you sat down in your own spare time, and you, f at the time you thought, I think we can do this. Yes. And so you had to take this idea now and, and try to turn it into a reality. Yeah, so my strategy was, okay, I'm gonna go to Garth and Greg and say, I'm gonna, I wanna propose an experiment. 
And they're going to say no, because you have an experiment. But I said, well, no, it would be good practice for me to propose an experiment. Don't you think it'd be good practice for you? I propose an experiment, stand before the EEC and propose it. And, you know, they'll shoot me down, but. But it practice, would still right. be a good learning process. Good learning for you, experience, right? don't you think? Well, yes. Eventually, you'll have to do this if you stay in the field. Yeah, right? exactly. So, good pedagogical exercise for the student. So that was my strategy. And so I wrote the proposal, and, uh, and obviously with their help, and they let me defend it. So I defended it in front of the EEC, <laughs> and they gave me high priority. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget that I got the letter. Um, I got the letter and saying, you know, your proposal was accepted with high priority. You've been granted, I think it was a, six weeks of beam time, a lot of beam time. And I was just super excited. And I remember walking into their office and I was, hey, it was accepted with high priority. And then they looked at the piece of, I handed them the piece of paper. Is that awesome? And they looked at the piece of paper and they both went, now we have to do it. And I was, I was just utterly deflated. I was like, isn't this great? My experiment. And they're like, yeah, it's fantastic. You had that classic, <laughs> you know, you had the classic puppy attitude of like, this is very exciting. Yeah, Why is nobody in, else excited exactly, about this? I'm in there. And then the, this, the people that have been through it so many times are like, oh, that's another round. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, of course, I had no idea. I, mean, I had no concept at the time of... The, the kinds of pressures and, and, and the, the workload that research scientists have. They got multiple projects on the go, and, and I just added another one on the pile. And I promised a lot. So we had to develop a brand new liquid hydrogen target, and we did all sorts of things. Fortunately, we uh, got it, we got this brand new li uh, liquid hydrogen target built. Cam Marshall, who's still at Triumph, was one of the guys who helped mm -hmm. design it. It was a very successful experiment. I got to plan the, you know, the, the schedule, and they gave me a tremendous amount of leeway. I mean, they gave me all the rope I needed, and I'll be forever grateful to Garth for that. And so it was awesome, and it, it worked out fabulously. Which, again, just to, to recuperate the team, here. This is another example of something that you thought it was great, super cool. You thought you could do it. You took a chance at it. When like, can I do this? The people said yes, and yeah. you did it. <laughs> yeah, and they let me do it too. Remember, right? I mean, it was to their in enduring credit that they had enough faith in me. And I, I, to this day, I wonder, like, why on earth would they give so much responsibility to a guy like me? You know. Uh, but they did, and it worked out. It was a very good experiment. We did a very good job, and uh, it worked fabulously. By the end of it, you know, I was finally like, oh, I'm a physicist. How about that? <laughs> so we started with the question, or more the interest, on figuring out how to build computers, and uh, here we are now as a, a full-on physicist. Yeah, well, you know... Uh, it might seem a little bit, you know, flippant, flippant my description of how I went through school. But through, through it all, I always maintained and always was extremely curious about everything. I really wanted to learn how to do all of these things. So even though I did not learn how to build computers, ultimately, I still uh, was uh, always very um, – I, I, I love – working with them, coding and, and running computers and then the data analysis and all that kind of stuff. And all the other aspects of 
you know, that sort of wide-ranging curiosity is I always maintain that. And so even when I was a physicist, I would always be dabbling doing other things, and which is how I got into outreach, right? So, you know, I went to MIT for my postdoc. And, so uh, let's talk actually a yeah. little bit about that because that's the first time you take a break, let's say, from the UBC Triumph right. combo in your, Nin- let's call it, academic career. Yeah, 1995 is when I got yeah. my so PhD. So you, you, you pack your bags and, and, and you relocate from West Coast to the East Coast to and from Canada to the U.S., to Boston, uh, Massachusetts. I had no idea what the heck I was so t- doing. So talk to us a little bit about that process. And so, what were you doing at MIT? So what happened was, is because I was running this experiment that I did for my Ph.D., was in direct competition with uh, an iconic experiment in the field done in 1971 at CERN by a very uh, prestigious uh, physicist by the name of David Bug. And basically, I was saying that his data was wrong. And everybody knew about this data. I mean, this was kind of a big deal. This was you know, data that was directly challenging uh, this iconic data set. And as it turns out, we were right, I think. Uh, I think it's pretty clear we were right. And the other, and we were actually building on, this was an experiment that was building on other work that was being done at Triumph prior to, to, that. For, to me. So I was just building on that. I just said, look, we should also do it over here. They didn't. You know, the original thinking was, no, that old data is definitive, but that's where I came in. I said, no, I argued it's not. So because of that, I was in all of these meetings. I caught the eye of an MIT professor. And uh, so he invited me to MIT because he was also interested in this kind of physics, not using pions, but using electrons and photons as the, as the starting beam, but always on, on using proton, studying the structure of the proton. But at the same time, I got offered a job at Triumph in on Atlas. Atlas was just getting going. They were just starting to design the hydronic NCAP calorimeter. So this is the big detector, the Large Hadron Collider right. in Switzerland. So the Atlas detector and uh, the hydronic NCAP calorimeter was going to be built at Triumph and I was going to be hired as one of the first postdocs. And, but then I got this job offer from MIT. And then it was again, oh, Jesus. So I had a good job offer at Triumph, but then I'm going to go to MIT. And so I thought, wow, MIT, that's pretty cool. How many chances are you going to ever get to go to MIT? Yeah, that's another cool experience you can add to your list. Right. So I I said, okay, I'm going to go to MIT. Um, And I got to Boston knowing nothing about Boston. All I knew about Boston is the two city blocks that you could see outside the Boston Gardens during Hockey Night in Canada telecasts. (laughs) Right. I didn't know anything about the city. (coughs) And as it turns out, Boston is an awesome place. For my postdoc there, again, it's, it's the same kind of thing. We have some projects. We'd like you to pick one up, but I didn't do that. <laughs> I wanted to develop this other technique. I, these guys in the, at the Paul Scherer Institute in Switzerland were developing a new technology called polarized scintillator targets. So you can, so you got a plastic scintillator, which we use for detecting the passage of charged particles, right? It's, there's lots of hydrogen in it. And so, if, and hydrogen is, for nuclear physics purposes, is just a proton, the proton nucleus. The idea was, is you can polarize the protons inside all of the hydrogen that's inside the scintillator. And then when you hit the proton with whatever it is you're going to hit it with, in this, in this case, it was a gamma ray, a photon. When the proton bounces off, 
it is going through the scintillator, which it, it's, it was embedded in, and mm-hmm. it emits some light, and you can detect the light. And use that as So your, you could you know. use the same thing as both the target and the detector. It's a really cool idea. So I thought, I, I think I could make an experiment out of this. So I spent three years uh, trying to create an experiment out of this, which I ultimately did. But then the experiment was supposed to go on the floor in February of 2000, but my postdoc ended in November of 1999, and they wouldn't extend it. And without the postdoc on the project, they canceled the experiment. Oh, that's so unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. You, you did all this groundwork and yeah, yeah, done, yeah. and then you were so close to get it through the Yeah, yeah. It was line. just like I spent just three years Pulling the rug and from under your and they feet just right pull, away. Yeah. So, I mean, I, was, I did a postdoc there for four years, so on the one hand, I could see why they would do that, but it was it was disappointing. But uh, it wasn't half as bad as what happened uh, next, is right. I was um, doing finishing a postdoc. I was looking for work. There was opportunities to go to Frascati in Italy and, and PSI and all these various places. But then the person who had previously offered me a job in, uh, as a postdoc at Atlas at Triumph offered it to me again. Would you like to come back? So, so you have an opportunity to them to come back to Vancouver. In your in your mind, you're like, well, I, I gained my four year experience in Boston. I come back. Perfect. I'm doing what I was supposed to do uh, in the yeah, beginning. What I should have anyway. what I should have done in the first place. So this seems like a, another slam dunk. <laughs> win win, right? So I said, fantastic. Yeah, sure. So I turned down some of these other opportunities, and then uh, he says, great, great. You know, I'm going to be at a, a conference in I think it was San Moritz at the time. It was August of '99. I'll fax you a contract, sign it, and fax it back. And uh, nothing's coming. Nothing's coming. Nothing's Crickets. coming. Crickets. So I send him an email. I said, hey, uh, you know, conference is ending. Uh, what's going on? I get an email back. The, the first sentence was something like, please understand that I'm doing this for your own good. Right. Well, that and, never bids well. That any 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 letter that starts like that is not gonna is not gonna end well. Right. That is not a good omen. And so they had retracted the offer. They had retracted the offer, and uh, the reasons were that well, they felt that I you know having done what I had been doing, it would be too difficult to transition to to do this other stuff in the, uh, with the Atlas project. I guess they felt maybe I wasn't up to the job. Whatever they. Pulled the job. So now I'm in San Moritz. I had given up my apartment. I started to ship stuff back. I was about to leave, and I'm stuck. So so you literally have no place to stay. You're not in Boston. No, You're I'm technically not back in Vancouver yet. Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah. The, the, your experiment was pulled from under you. Yes. Your job was pulled from under you. And you're yeah. like in this conference, and you're like, all right, we got to reassess this and yeah. figure this out. Exactly. Now what? So what's the next step so after this? So what happened was is I, we, start, I, I went back and, you know, all like um, the, my former colleagues at Triumph, many of them were there. And I told them it, what had just happened. And, uh, and, they, and one of them, Greg Smith said, hey, one of my postdocs has left early. I've got money until next, into the next year. Just for the meantime, why don't you come back for the rest of that postdoc? I got money, so at least you got somewhere to go. Like, you know, you're not going to go live at home now. So I said, okay, sure, that's fair. That'd be great, thank you. And so that was on the chaos experiment. The chaos experiment was this big magnet 
uh, for uh, using to do pion physics experiments. You put a target in the middle, the pion would come in, the scattered particles would go out, and the magnetic field would help analyze them. You can analyze their momentum and charge and stuff like that. So we came back, and I started off as a postdoc uh, doing those experiments, and there were some really good experiments. So it was kind of going back to what I was doing again. But it became clear to me that this wasn't a long-term yeah, I could sort of see the writing on the wall, uh, what was going to happen. I, uh, I was then picked up by the University of Regina as a postdoc. Ted Matthews, a professor there, hired me as a postdoc. So I was technically a University of Regina postdoc for a year or two, uh, working on these experiments. And, but I could see the writing on the wall. So, the, so you're starting to see, feel like this might, this, this might be cl- coming to an end. Yeah. So, so you you're starting to look around and try right. to figure out what, what are the cool stuff I can do? What exactly. Else can I so, uh, you know, I started to, you know, inquire everywhere about faculty positions and whatnot. Something happened, which I had not anticipated, is the, the field, the kind of physics, the kind of experimental physics that I was doing was coming to an end. Now, of course, me and my short-termism, only about that time that I started to think looking further afield, saying, oh, wait a minute, hang on a second. This isn't going anywhere. And so I would make inquiries. I made lots of inquiries here in the physics department, SFU, all throughout Canada. And I was hearing the same story, right? The kind of stuff that you're doing isn't stuff that people are doing anymore. So I'm like, oh, geez, right? And so now I'm like, now I'm really scratching my head. Well, then what happened? All this time, again, I'm still very curious in all of these things and uh, about all sorts of things happening. And one of the things I became more uh, engaged in, and it started at MIT actually, was about uh, science education and teaching and outreach, teaching science to the public and reaching out to the public about science education and outreach and all that kind of stuff. And I came, when I came back to Triumph, there was none of that. There was no communications department. There was no outreach, nothing. And I remember sitting in the... In the uh, in the in the office in the cafeteria and i was you know talking to somebody about this and bemoaning this this is crazy triumph really needs to do this for our long-term future we need to communicate what we're doing etc 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 and we had just hired a new director at the time a guy named alan schotter and uh the guy with i can't remember who was sitting across from me he says well the new director is very big in outreach and communications back in europe uh, when did you go talk to him? And of course, you know, now I'm, my blood pressure's up. And I say, yeah, yeah, sure, of course. And I, <laughs> it's like I often did. I walked across the hall and talked to the admin assistant. I said, is the director free? I sat down and I proceeded to tell him that Triumph ought to do communications and outreach. And I, as you know, you've heard the story before. I went on and on about why this was important. And I went on for about, you know, 20 minutes or more. And at the end, Alan looked at me, he says, great idea. Why don't you give me a proposal? And, you know, and, and at the time I thought that was kind of a challenge, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, I'll give you a proposal. Sure, I'll give you a proposal. So I set to work on creating a proposal to start TOP, the Triumph Outreach Project. And I had this proposal finally, and I brought it to him, and he says, okay, do it. Great, how much money do I got? Oh, well, we don't have any money for that. And I'm like, What? Uh, how am I supposed to do it? Well, find some money. Go go find some money. There's foundations around and blah, blah, blah. So I 
didn't know anything about foundations or anything. So I started learning about foundation. learned about the first one I found was the Vancouver Foundation. They fund education and stuff like that. That's good. Why don't I ask them? So I wrote a proposal and they gave me $115,000 or $125,000 to start the Triumph Outreach Project. And again, this is the same process where you just, just, went, just asked. Just asked. <laughs> Just and half the time, ask. you know, most of the time, they, you know, it didn't work when yeah, I just obviously. asked. But this time, it worked. They gave me this money. Obviously, we're only going to talk about the the, the success. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> we don't want to talk about all my all my many failures. The, um, well, of course, the fa- the failures help to to, to feed the success. Right? Absolutely, you can't have one without the other. And so, you need manure to grow up uh, good tomatoes. And so you you found this new vein. In, of the lab yeah. that, that you found interesting. And you, you created the program, you know, as you, yeah. as you just described. Well, with a lot of help, of course. Well, obviously, yeah. you yeah. know, the, you, no, but nothing is done in a vacuum or by a single right. individual in a lab as big as this. Yeah. And um, what did you find the most fulfilling part of the outreach program was at the time? What, what was the thing that really captivated you about that program? Well, the the motivation then, as it is now, was I wanted to contribute, okay? So it, it started to dawn on me that maybe I'm not going to be a research scientist. Although at the time, when Alan says, when I found the money, he says, great, we're going to start this outreach project. And I was hired as his postdoc, right, working on nuclear physics, actually, on the tactic de- detector. So my, my time was supposed to be half science, half outreach. So I thought, okay, this is this is me. So I'm going to transition. I'm going to be the one who's doing the outreach and communications. That's that's how I can contribute to the yeah. Triumph Enterprise. So you you just you just felt like you fit in the in the lab that that was the environment that you yeah. wanted to be in. I wanted to be just, at Triumph, and you found that that was the best way that, for you to contribute. Exactly, the most interesting and, and cool way to contribute. Yeah, that is exactly that is exactly it. I saw that I, I wanted to contribute in, in, in the scientific ways, and I thought I could, and I knew I could, but then there was nobody doing this. And I thought, well, who else could do this? And I thought, well, let's be honest. I'm the best person for this job. <laughs> of so, course. Uh, that's of what course. I, that's what I said to myself. So I said, okay, I could do this. I could do the science, and I could do this outreach. And I remember Jean-Michel Poutissou, he was the science director at the time. He said, ooh, watch out. If you do this, you're not going to be doing science anymore. I said, no, no, it's in my job description, 50%. He goes, oh, be careful, be careful. And uh, as he often was, he was right because um, there was nothing like this at Triumph. And so you're starting from scratch, and that takes a lot of time and energy. It's about mobilizing people and, and getting programs together, and it's 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 not – particularly difficult. It's not uh, the, the intellectual challenge isn't like that of doing an experiment. But it's effort. But time, it's effort, time. There's organization. There's all sorts of things. You, you have to make new connections. I was busy out there all the time going to meetings and conferences with teachers trying to develop a rapport and, you know, and show that Triumph is seriously wants to get into this field. We're not dilettantes. We're not fly-by-night. Right, because that um, was the important thing, and the important thing had to be done right. right? Exactly. So, and then, of course, then they ha- had somebody doing this outreach and public education stuff. Um, you know, I, I took over the, the tours and, and doing the thing. They said, well, we want to write a newsletter. And there's 
nobody around doing anything remotely like this except me. So now I suddenly got into communications. Now I started publishing a newsletter. So I created the Triumph newsletter. They had already created one, but it kind of stalled because there was nobody to take it over. So then I took it over. So I became the newsletter editor. So suddenly I'm in communications now. And now suddenly I'm writing press releases. You know, I don't know anything about this stuff, right? So it was... So a learning part, process. So part of the challenge was, okay, well, I'm going to learn how to do this. And if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this properly. Which is great because this is yet another problem which you didn't know the answer to. Exactly. So you have to go and learn from again. So that now, curiosity just still perpetrates well, and story. Then, and, you know, when you look back at your life, you say, how the heck did I end up where I am now? Like, And Robert Persig, who wrote uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, has a great quote I learned. Uh, he said, you know, sometimes you look at your, you know, you look at where you are now and nothing makes sense. But when you look, you look back at your life, pattern emerges. And I had always been, remember I talked about, I, I was reading encyclopedias when I was 10 years old and telling my friends about everything that I had learned. That hadn't stopped. I kept doing that through undergraduate. I kept doing that through graduate school. That, that's nothing. It didn't stop. So that was part of me. Do, being wanting to learn stuff, all sorts of stuff, and then communicate it. Now, I didn't think it was a job at the time. I did. I just did it because that's what I wanted to do. That's the kind of thing that motivated me, got me excited. But I didn't think it was a job. Well, now now I find myself doing outreach at Triumph, and what is it? It just came full suddenly. Circle. Suddenly, the stuff that I've been doing my entire life becomes my job, and uh, and so now I have. I learned all this physics, so I know how to do physics, and I know the process of being a scientist. I, you know, I, I, I could honestly say I can get I'm inside the head of scientists when they're doing things. I know what they're thinking, the pressures. I know what motivates people, et cetera, et cetera. But now I can talk about it. I can tell people about it. I can communicate that because I've been doing it all my life. It, it, it's, I find it hysterical that. This thing that I was a part of me all of my life <laughs> became my job. Yeah, I know it's 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 funny how sometimes life just comes full circle. Comes full circle, right? Yeah, as long yeah. I mean, as long as you were, and a friend of mine said that to me once: is as long as you are honest with yourself and you do what it is that feels right, you're going to end up in the right place. You're going to end up in some place where your skills, your talents, are going to be put to best use or where you're meant to be where you're supposed to be or absolutely you know maybe not exactly but you know you're doing things that are meant for you to be doing and it sort of started to dominate because okay this this is what i'm supposed to be doing that was a lot of fun there was a lot of fun engaging with the teachers we came up with some good programs i started the high school fellowship in 2004 uh, which has been a great success with all Absolutely. kinds of great students come through here. Unbelievable student. What I like is from, from the outside, what, what I'm seeing is that you transition from finding opportunities to creating opportunities to others. You know, yeah. all the high school fellows, the co-ops, uh, th- there's a lot of work that goes into to create those opportunity for those young students and young people to come in. And, and you know, that. part of that was thinking, I wish I would have had that opportunity. Coming out of high school, you know, when you had no idea what to do. If somebody said, oh, here's an opportunity to go to a place like Triumph for a summer, I would have been all over that. What are the kinds of things that I know would have motivated me and can these can that possibly motivate other students to do it as well? 
And so I, I, I take a lot of pride in that. I think we did a really good job. We're expanding the program now. We've uh, partnered with the Life Sciences BC and Genome BC. And so they're now ha- hiring some of these high school students. And we're thinking seriously about going even further afield, maybe getting other people, wildlife biologists, and you know, any place that's doing basic research to hi- start hiring these high school. Because there doesn't seem to be any program like this around. And uh, there seems to be a lot of interest in this. So now, okay, so now you're starting to get older, right? Now I'm in, you know, at the time I was in my 40s, now I'm in my 50s. Uh, Pretty soon, (laughs) only for a little while longer will I be in my 50s. And now you start thinking about the um, other things, things like this, teaching, you know, passing on what you know and whatnot. And so now I'm uh, very highly motivated uh, about education and, and teaching. Which, which is wonderful because just, it just brings everything full circle. It's just so yeah. nice. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you have been a triumph for, for so much of triumph history. You walked in as a summer student and, and you, you're now uh, the head of academics. Out, out of all this timeline, what was your favorite moment at Triumph, this place that clearly resonated with you significantly? My favorite moment? Yeah. Well, my favorite moment was the first moment I walked in the door. That was my favorite moment because I knew that I had found where I need, I wanted to be. I found I found where I wanted to be. So I walked in that door and I and I remember thinking this this is where I want to be. So this is the first time you stepped the into the first meson time hall. I stepped into the meson hall, January of 1986. Probably my second most favorite moment was when I got the. Um, my PhD experiment when it was approved, the EEC approval, that letter, the excitement was just, the, I was so excited. The, the high was oh, as was high as such possible. A, such a high. I mean, doing the PhD was not, a, finishing the PhD was not a high, right? For a lot of people, it's like, it's like this, when it finally happened, it was, I was just so tired. I couldn't even, I was too tired to be happy. But that, that moment when I got the experiment approved at for a number of reasons. A, it was a success. Like my argument, I, I won them over. I'm a scientist now. It was kind of like, I'm a scientist you now. You convinced that was a, other scientists I, that your science case uh, was good. Exactly. And that was huge. It still is. I still, I still giggle when Fantastic. I, when I, when I think about it, I can't Fantastic. believe it. And so this has been a long journey. If you had one final message uh, for anybody who's listening, what would that be? Oh, for, well, don't listen to me. That'd be the first thing. <laughs> listen to yourself. Listen to yourself about and look deep about what it is that really motivates you. You know, you got to find out what really, what really wants you to get out of bed in the morning. What, what gets you excited that is going to motivate you to do that little bit extra, right? Because a lot of times we're all faced with this. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. We should be doing the other thing. But if you can keep connected to those things that really motivate you and try to nudge those along, keep those fires burning and keep feeding them, then eventually you could find yourself in a place where uh, that's who you are, right? You're going to be doing that. And even if it's not you're going to be doing that, it's going to be helping you do what you're doing. Because those are the things, if you're going to be successful in anything that you do, and I think this is a generic statement, I don't think I'm you know, I'm saying anything new, you've got to be doing the things that really motivate you, that, you know, that you could get you to do extra. Just doing the mundane, just wrote things is not 
is not the path to success, right? That's not going to do it. And you'll be a lot happier when you find that because then you're going to discover that you're going to be doing things which are deeply embedded in who you really are as a person. And you're going to be much happier doing that rather than something else which might be more lucrative but is not really you and, you know, you're going to feel a hollowness and because you're sh- you should be doing that rather than what you really, really want to be doing. Right. Now, how to get there, that's up to you to figure Thousands out. Thousands roads to get to Rome, yeah. right? A, yeah. So find that something cool, find that something important, something that resonates with you and uh, success will come. Keep it. Absolutely. Well, Marcello, unfortunately, we're out of time. It was an absolute pleasure. This has been a fantastic episode. I really had a lot of fun. I hope you had fun. I did. Uh, and uh, yeah thanks again for joining us well thanks for listening everyone we really hope you enjoyed the show Uh, before we go let me remind you a couple of things first off you can follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram at Triumph Lab all one word you can also follow me on Twitter at Pietro Giampa so tweet us or leave us a comment we're always happy to hear your opinions or your questions Also, if you like what you heard today and you would like to visit Triumph in person, we do offer free public tours every week. For more info, visit our website www.triumph.ca. That is www.triumph.ca. Now, this podcast is entirely produced by an in-house team here at Triumph. And for that, we want to thank the lab for the enormous support we received for this project. I would also like to thank the Triumph Community Fund for sponsoring this little podcast that could. We certainly wouldn't be here without their support. And finally, a big thank to our production team, Carlo Rodrigo, Stuart Shepard, Ketty Ong. The art for this podcast is provided by Diana Castaneda and Shirley Wu. I am your host, Pietro Gempa, and thanks for listening again. Her coffee break is over. It's time for us to get back to science. So until next time. 